Hey, um, I, we were trying to reminisce last night, and I was trying to, and Daniel was horrible with his own date, so I went back after we ate supper last night, I went back and got his book out, and read his book again, and got dates. Uh, back in the late 80s, uh, there began to be a movement in the former Soviet Union. How many remember this? And, and communism began to be diminished and, and openness began to happen. The wall in Berlin came down. And uh, Daniel began to be one of the very, very first folks that began to see the opportunities of going into the former Soviet Union and plant churches. In about 1990, a man by the name of J.D. Simmons called me he was, at that time, the head of the Pentecostal Church and introduced me to a guy by the name of George McDonald. Um, and he was the head of the missions department of that denomination, connected to Regent University. And Terry Webb and I, Glenn Edmonds, Helen Martin, and there were a couple of the people. And we went to Russia in 1993, and we planted several churches. That was all part of the plan, the strategy that Daniel had led with Calvary International. Uh, near as I could tell last night, Googling online, reading your book, they've attributed over 4,000 direct churches to what Daniel planned in that time and estimated over 12,000 that sprang out of that. Um, today, that ministry, Go To Nations, it was Calvary International, that's Go To Nations, is in 102 to 112 countries. Literally online, it said that they were planting in, in countries every month or two and they couldn't keep up. Something like every day, five to seven churches are being planted out of that ministry. Well, that's, that's Bishop Daniel Williams. That's who started that, he and his wife. Uh, that happened, I knew of him by reputation in the 90s. Didn't meet Daniel until 2000, 2004. And it was the night I was consecrated almost 17 years ago, and Daniel Williams walked in this building. And someone stepped back in my office and said, do you know who Daniel Williams is? And I said, yes, I do. And they said, well, he's here. And uh, real honestly, we had never met personally. Uh, when people talk to me about missions around the world, I happen to believe that Daniel and Sharon are two of the greatest missionaries in the world. I, I, I mean that. Um, if you've never read his book, and he says he has boxes of them, uh, we ought to get a few of them here. His book, The Sound of Rushing Waters, is just a phenomenal, phenomenal work, way ahead of its time. He and I were laughing last night. It'll probably sell thousands and thousands of copies, and his grandchildren will be rich once he's dead. I mean, it'll. great authors aren't discovered until they're gone. I mean, it's just one of those things. Uh, Daniel was part of the help find founding of the communion that I now have leadership in. He planted a great church, Convergence. It was known by Bob Weber as one of the greatest Convergence churches that were established, still pastoring. The last seven years, if I'm correct, uh, Daniel has been leading a mission worldwide for the Israeli Allied Foundation. That foundation has worked in 37 countries to establish political caucus groups that are working for Israeli policies in 37 different nations around the world. Some of what you saw when the uh, embassy was moved to Jerusalem, which was a 30-year battle, Daniel was directly involved in working with countries to see that embassy moved. Uh, I, I, you can't make these stories up. He, he told me last night, he said, if I'd write a book, nobody would believe it. 
Well, I'm just here to tell you, I've watched him do all those things. Uh, so when he speaks with a voice about Christianity and how it affects the world, not just in leading Christians to the Lord, but how that connects to Israel, that there isn't over three or four people in the world that would have a better insight into that. And besides all that, he's just my friend. Uh, just at the end of the day, he and I have the same barber, uh, literally. <laughs> and uh, just, again, as life gets a little longer and we get a little older and we don't get to see each other as much, I cannot tell you how, how much of an honor it has been to share ministry with Daniel for almost 20 years. So give my friend, Bishop Daniel Williams, a great big Hutchinson. Thank you, buddy. Some of, the, some of you know that one of the greatest movies ever made was called The Greatest Story Ever Told. When they make a movie of my book, it'll be the greatest book that never sold. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, but I didn't write it for that. It was really, it was writing my journey and trying to help others that are on that journey to be able to do some of the same things. And in some ways, the message today is an extension of that because I'm just going to share another story with you, and it's right out of the Bible, but it's how it has unfolded in me, and I'm hoping unfolds in you as you take that to heart. Uh, before I get started, I just want to say it's always a blessing to be here at Father's house. I mean, it's been so many years, and uh, it's also a tremendous blessing to remember uh, what it's like to be in the Midwest. I'm a Southerner. And if you understand anything about the South, or if you don't know this and you do business there, you should know this. Everybody there is nice. But here's the thing. If, somebody, if you ask somebody, hey, John, is Fred, I, he's come to you know, live in my neighborhood, is he a nice guy? If he says, oh, yeah, he's nice, that means he ain't no good at all. <laughs> if he says... He's real nice, then that means he's nice. You understand the difference there? So if you'll just remember that, you'll do a lot better when you show up in my neighborhood because uh, they all act nice, but you may not be real nice. You see what I'm saying? So anyway, but every, every you know, every, every part of the world has a culture. Sharon and I have been around the world. I've been in 81 countries. She's in 70-something. She just literally got back from South Korea in China last week, and she heads to Vancouver on the day that I get home. <laughs> so we have literally traveled the nations of the world and uh, been around a lot of cultures, but I've really gotten to, because I've been coming here so long, and I used to go to some other area, states right in the Midwest, I kind of got to know Midwest culture. And one of the things, but, but, you, but Kansas is a little unique in one thing that I can think of, and that is every time I come, especially when I come to Hutch, I'm checking in my hotel, and almost without exception, and that's so many times now, without exception, another person is checking in, and they say, they, like, if you come and I see you in a Jacksonville airport, I, I might just ask you, uh, uh, is this your first time? Or I might, but they don't ask that here. They always ask, what are you doing here? <laughs> just like that. 
And it's really stunning to me, you know, because especially over the last few years, I've worked a lot in Washington, D.C., and nobody ever asks a question that straightforward, ever, unless they're in some uh, Senate committee or in House committee or something. They just don't ask what, you know, and then if they do ask you, you never get a straight answer. It's just the way, it's just the way it is. So it's kind of refreshing to come here. So I thought I would be a little Kansan uh, this morning and just say something just straightforward that, without polishing it up. And uh, that is, uh, I, I was, took a shower this morning, I used a shampoo, believe it or not, uh, not for the hair, just because it, it's easy to shave with. <laughs> You'd have to shave your head to understand what I'm talking about here. But I had some conditioner left over, and I want you to know I don't need this. So if anybody needs this, you are welcome to it. And I've got it in my pocket, and I just got one, but you are welcome to it, Okay. Uh, I actually believe I have a word from the Lord for you this morning. And I, I think all the time, any time I've stood in this pulpit, I've tried to have what I believed was the word of the Lord for the church. But I think this one actually is more significant than any time I've ever spoken here. And uh, I started with a little bit of humor, but I'm going to really beat you up for this thing's over with. I'm sorry to tell you, this is a, this is a barn burner. Uh, and I can tell you that because it had to come to me before it could come through me. You understand what I mean? And, uh, and sometimes, you know, we certainly want to encourage you always forward, but this, there, there, there's, this came prophetically to me, not specifically to you the way it came to me. I was in church about three weeks ago at a friend's church, and I was just attending. Sharon was in China, and uh, so I was just attending there, but he's a friend of mine. Reminds me a lot of Quentin, a lot, of, a lot like Bishop in some ways. They, we all use the same barber, by the way. And, uh, you know, I, I, I tell people, look, the reason God took my hair is he likes looking at himself. I got this nice shiny spot up there. And it's like, you know, boy, he sees his glowing glory right there. So there's nothing in the way, you know. But uh, anyway, uh, he, he reminds me a lot of uh, Bishop. In the sense that uh, the church is kind of similar, uh, their backgrounds sort of similar. They don't know each other, but uh, but it just reminds me a lot of it. Uh, in fact, it's funny uh, when I was here three weeks ago, they were announcing their uh, trunk or treat, and they're expecting seventeen thousand to show up at theirs. And they've been doing it like you guys have year after year. It's grown and grown, and and uh, and I've only seen two churches that do that at this at that level that are this size that is a huge 10,000 people that's that's a huge that's are you counting cows and stuff in that or that's a lot of people that's that's like a, what is that a fifth of the whole a fourth of the entire city so I mean that's pretty big and uh, but they're kind of they remind me a lot of each other and so I was there on a Sunday morning and they are not surprisingly, but it's surprising to me when I found out, they are also having a move of God that is very unique for them. They had many years in the past, a kind of a, you know, the, a lot of the revivals swept through a lot of churches, and they were one of them. And, uh, but it hasn't been that way for as long as I've known them, which has only been a few years. And, uh, I, so I, I had gone to church, I, I travel a lot, so I hadn't been there in, I don't know, quite a long time, three, four, three months probably. And when I got there, <laughs> there was something going on. Uh, as, soon as, as soon as the worship started, there, you could sense something going on. 
I mean, really, something going on, something happening. And uh, they always have pretty good worship, but it's, you know, it just was, it was just different. And, uh, and so they, they kept going for a while, and then they, uh, Pastor gets up, Pastor Philip, he gets up, and he just makes an altar call. And the altar fills up with people. There might be 70 to 100 people, I don't recall. It was a lot of people, just all over. And I'd never seen that before in that church. I don't, I've not attended all that much, but in the few years that I have gone from time to time, I've never seen anything like it. And, uh, and then that, they went back into worship, and a few minutes later, another altar call. And he, it's basically the same call for healing or a touch from God or you know, something you need to come put before the Lord and, and you know, kind of the same thing. And it filled up again. Now, about half of the people were the same people, but it filled up again. And then uh, we went into worship a little while, and it, and it did it again. The third altar call still hadn't preached, hadn't done anything, nothing, no offering, not, nothing had happened, nothing else happened, by the way, the rest of that service except for this. This is all that happened. He got to the end, he said, just go home. But he did. But... Uh, and, but, and I'd never seen that before. But uh, nonetheless, they, they had their third one. And it was the same, same thing happened. It filled up again. About half the people were people I'd recognized walk up there before. The other half, different people. And they went back into worship. And they did, did it one more time. They did four altar calls. Now, that sounds like a real kind of move of God, right? And later, after the service, there was something. I mean, they said that this has been going on about two or three weeks. And they just have had an outburst of people getting saved. And, you know, you got a bunch of people getting baptized. They've been having the same thing, people getting saved, people driving into the church, say, you know, at the parking lot in the middle of the week, saying, I don't know why we're, I'm here, but I just need somebody to pray with me. And it, just stuff like that happening, Q. And, uh, it's, and, and I had not heard that. So I found that out after the service. But while this is still going on, and during the fourth, the fourth um, altar call, and I keep seeing all these people that are going forward, but I also notice that about half the time, every, every time, all four of them, about half the people were people that had come up to one or more of the other altar calls. And that bothered me. It didn't bother me that they kept having altar calls. It bothered me that the same people kept coming up because whatever they came for didn't happen because it was the same altar call each time. Not, not, was not very, you know, this one for healing and this one. It was always the same, pretty much the same words. And they kept coming up. And it, it, it bugged me. Now, it bugged me because I'm a, I'm a problem solver. You know, God wires all of us differently. But I'm, you know, when I saw, when I was a young man and I saw the need in world missions, I had had that sewn into my life through my childhood and through my, all my life. I had been around church and around missionaries, that kind of thing. But, but when I started looking at the charismatic movement at that time, we're now in, back into the 70s. Uh, when I saw that, I didn't see that happening out of our churches that were growing and so on. By the time I got to 1981, I felt like God had really moved on my heart for Sharon and me to become missionaries. And we did. But it was to solve a problem one problem being my own calling, I felt like that was what God wanted us to do, and we did. We took our four little children, including a two-month-old baby, and moved to Costa Rica. 
And uh, little did we know what that, that would be the fountainhead of what is today go-to nations. It's 102 countries, millions and millions of people saved. Uh, and every, I think I heard somewhere that every, uh, every uh, 17 hours, a new church is planted somewhere in the world through go-to nations. Just that one org. And uh, so every 17 hours, another church, another church, another church, another church, countries around the world. That all started with a breaking of a logjam of something in our lives, and Sharon in particular, take a tremendous risk to, she had never been out of the country. I had gone down on something, and I just felt, I came home and I said, Sharon, I think we're supposed to go to Costa Rica. There's a move of God down there, and I just believe we're supposed to be part of it. What I didn't know at the time, that that would become the fountainhead of millions of people being saved around the world every 17 hours maybe just a minute ago another church planted somewhere in the world because of that of the log jam being moved through that one step of obedience now I got to tell you I've been through several things like that in my life and it never looks like a miracle a miracle never looks like a miracle when it's happening it only looks like a miracle after it's happened I mean, what did a miracle look like in the Old Testament? How about when the children of Israel, after hundreds of years, escaped from Egypt, slavery in Egypt, and they're headed in the right direction. If you'll ever pull out one of those historic maps and look at the direction they left from Egypt, they were going the right way. God stopped them and turned them and told them to go a different way. And where he turned them... Instead of going on down, you, there's a land bridge that he, they could have gone right de- into what is today Israel. Instead, they were sent back up against the Red Sea. So all of a sudden, and, they, and if you see their route, it, it didn't just, sh- they walked along that a long time. I don't know what they thought they were going to find, but God sent them all the way. So they were so entirely trapped at the Red Sea, only God could have divinely and sovereignly put them there. Now, do you think that looked like a miracle? Do you think it looked like... Now, it looked like a miracle when they walked out of slavery, but it didn't look like a miracle how it worked out. And then all of a sudden, they see the dust over the Egyptian army that is chariots and horses and men marching, headed right to them. I don't think that looked like a miracle. And just as that army was within sight, and they not only see a cloud of dust, but they're in sight, the sea begins to open. God opens the Red Sea, and they walk through. They do something nobody ever dreamed possible and walk through over dry land. But even still, the waters were held open. And I know how it is. People are looking back going, God, they're they're still coming. We're all going to die. I wish those people would just shut up sometimes, but they never do. They're usually the loudest voice. And (laughs) all of a sudden, the water captures the entire Egyptian army and destroys them. I was reading that. One time, and it dawned on me, there was only one way to destroy the 
the largest at that time land army in the world. And that was for it to happen all at one time by God's hand. You see, if they had made it that other direction, the Egyptians would have just shown back up and captured them again. But it destroyed it. Egypt disappeared as one of the many empires had, like the Persian Empire and the Syrian Empire. And most of the time when they attacked God's chosen people. Go back and look at it. Just keep in mind, by the way, because at the end of the message, I'm going to tell you about something I just heard this morning. But uh, about Iran. Iran is Persia. You do understand that, right? Persia and Iran. One, it's, okay. And the Persian Empire was a great empire. And it was at the level of the Greeks and the Egyptians and the Assyrians. Tremendous. The Assyrians are Syria. Look at the mess they're in. But the fact of the matter is great armies have risen up. And it was God's way of destroying forever Egypt's capacity to overcome Israel. By the way, during the seven-day war, do you remember how many countries showed up? You ever listed the numbers, the who they were? Did you know it was the Assyrians and the Persians and the Egyptians? And all those armies were destroyed again. But I'm trying to tell you, it took over 2,000 years, almost 3,000 years for, that, for them to rise up again, to come after them, and then they were destroyed again, this time with missiles and tanks and some other miracles. I think, Quentin, were you on me that, uh, that trip where our bus driver had been a tank driver? He had been a tank driver in the, in the uh, 1948 war. His, he was not a young guy. Or 1967 war. In the 1967 war where five countries attacked Israel, he was, he was a young man then, and now he was driving our bus, and, and we get to this one place, and he stops, and he explains to us, up on the hill, that's where the Syrians were rolling over. This is in Jerusalem. Rolling over the hill with tanks, and they had hundreds of tanks, and they're coming down the hill, and they're down there with a handful of tanks trying to defend that, and they all believe they're going to die. And as they got about halfway down that hill, they stopped and they started getting out of their tanks and running back up the hill and left all those tanks, which, by the way, were used to do some serious injury to the Syrians over the next couple of days, and left those tanks. And so we're all going like, well, why did they do that? He said, well... When we talked to some of those that were captured later, they said they just saw this big guy with a sword standing over Jerusalem. You heard that too, didn't you, Quentin? And I've heard it. I had him about four or five times during those years, you know, in, on tours. And he'd tell that story every time. So did it look like a miracle when they have the Syrian tanks rolling down, did it look like a miracle when the Red Sea was before them and the Egyptian army? And I got to tell you, probably you are facing things right now that look just as impossible. There may be a much smaller scale, but to you, they feel just as impossible as that. Now, I'm not standing here to tell you we're about to have a miracle service, but in fact, we are. But it won't be the miracle you think. God's never used me too much in that kind of stuff, a little bit. But that's not what I'm here to tell you. The, what I'm here to tell you is the thing that's standing between you and that miracle is not someone else. It is you. 
Now you're thinking, oh, here's another one. He's going to tell me I don't have any faith. No, that's not your problem. You've got plenty of faith. It's just going the wrong direction. I'm t- I warned you right up front. This should come with a warning sticker. This is not going to be easy. But the only reason I could, it could come through me is it's had to come to me first. So I can, I'm speaking out of not some theory that I read in a book somewhere, but out of the, the life that Quentin just explained to you. The way I got involved with Israel is I, I, everybody else I knew that if you, if you said anything about Israel, they go, oh, praise the Lord, I love Israel so much, and I love Jerusalem, and I have, they'd have an Israeli flag. And all I knew about pro-Israel kind of stuff was that. And I'll be frank, that, I, that's never turned me on. It still doesn't. Because so much of it is, I mean, it's serious. It's not, I'm not criticizing it. It's sincere, but it doesn't, it doesn't actually accomplish anything. Remember, I'm a problem solver. So waving a, an Israeli flag in a worship service for me doesn't solve any problems. Actually, it creates a problem because people behind you can't see a thing that's going on. So, it, you know, as a pastor, it's kind of, oh, please, don't do that, you know. But the fact is, is that I'm not, it's not criticizing. I'm just saying that that's not from, that did not do anything for me. So that was never going to be the way God got me involved in this. So here, how did God get me involved in it? He sent a representative of the Israeli government to me to meet me personally. Came all the way to Ponte Vedra Beach, knock on my door to meet with me, to ask me if I would help them build stronger relationships with evangelical Christians because they didn't know how they didn't knew about evangelicals but they thought we were all crazy and they didn't want to have anything to they don't want to be converted so they didn't want to you know and so there was a very anti-christian bias within the Israeli government and within their policies but they realized that by pure numbers the only way that they would ever survive going into the future was to have people like yourself and me praying for them and standing with them, but they thought that that had the ability to have legislative power within state governments and national governments, and they were coming to me to ask me if I would help make that happen. Never been a policy guy. (laughs) Never been, I've never had nothing to do with any of that before. So it did not look like a miracle to me when that happened. It looked like this makes no sense. You may very well be on the precipice of something God wants to do in your life, but you're stuck. Now, let me go back to my friend's church. I was there a couple weeks ago, and the move of God was there, and I, I asked that question. Remember the question I asked? What does this mean? What's wrong here? Why for Four altar calls and the same people keep coming forward and nothing's happening for them. There's an atmosphere of faith. Some of the people are, they're coming back, they're weeping, they're crying. And these people keep coming back, about half the group every time. And I asked the Lord, what's the problem here? And God said a word to me, one word. Stuck. I said, what does that mean? He said to me, they're stuck. And then over the next few minutes, God gave me the message I'm preaching here this morning. God spoke to me 
And he said, they're stuck. They're stuck in the past. They're stuck in the present. And they're stuck in the future. I'll explain that as we go along. But when he said that, I knew that was a word of God to me. That was a word of the Lord. So I go up after the service and I tell Philip, I said, Pastor Philip, uh, I have a word from the Lord. He's, he said, he asked me what it was. I told him, he said, why didn't you come tell me during the service? I said, I don't, I don't know. I just, I, I, but I know it was a word from the Lord. I, you know, I said, I've never done that here. Didn't know if I would be free to do that. And he said, you are. But I didn't. So I left there, and before I left, he said, well, I want you to come preach that sometime. And uh, so I said, okay, just let me know when. So I I left, and I I started working on that sermon because I knew that was a word from the Lord. And I think it was about two days later. It may have even been the next day, but it might have been two days later. I get a call from Bishop Q. Would you come? I need you to be at something. Would you come? And he said, I'd like to have you come preach on Sunday morning. And as soon as he said it, I knew that that word, yeah, I'm going to, you know, I'll get it there. But that was for you. So what I'm about to tell you is a word from the Lord to you. The next day, Day, I think it was, or two days later, Pastor Philip calls me after I committed to come here this Sunday, calls me up and he says, can you come preach for me on October the 20th? I said, yeah. I said, I've already got the message, but I'll get to practice one time before I give it to you. So, what I'm tra- I wanted to give you a framework for this. It is, insofar as I can tell, a prophetic word from God to you. Maybe more than anything I've ever said in this pulpit. As I began to work on this, I started looking for a passage of scripture and I found a really, I found one that finally resonated. It's strange. Usually I'm reading scripture and from that I write a sermon. But in this case, I was, I got the sermon, the points, without the message, without the Bible verses. And God led me very quickly. It was amazing. Almost as soon as I opened the Bible, I went right to John chapter 14, and I'd read this hundreds of times, and I'd never seen it like I saw it that day. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, my Father's house. (laughs) How odd is that? The first place I get to preach this is in my Father's house. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would, ha- would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And I'm sure every one of these disciples was thinking, I have no idea what you're talking about. But only one of them had the courage. I'm going to call, I'm renaming Doubting Thomas to Courageous Thomas because he asks the right questions when it took courage to question what Jesus 
the Son of God had told him. By the way, when he shows up after the resurrection, who was the guy that said, eh, if that's really you, can I stick my hand into the wound that was in your side? Because he had seen that wound standing at the foot of the cross. Courageous Thomas knew to ask the right questions. And I'm going to tell you one of the biggest things in life that you need to learn is how to ask courageous questions. How to ask them of God and how to ask them of people. And quit, be, quit beating around the bush and let's get to truth. And start asking yourself honest questions. Good place to start right there. Honest questions. And talking this out with Sharon, she gets all my messages before anybody else does. And talking this out with Sharon... Uh, I said, I, what I saw in this story is something I've learned as a leader in life. If you want the right answers, you have to ask the right questions. It, they have to be perfectly timed. They have to be absolutely honest. They have to be asked with genuine, not trying to lead somebody. This is not a leading question. But questions, the questions of the heart open, they unfold truth to your life. So asking the right question at the right moment with the right attitude opens the miracle that you're actually wanting. But you can't manipulate God into a miracle. I get tickled sometimes when people tell me how many they, people they got praying for them for something. I don't think that's anything wrong with that necessarily except for it's become a thing. Anytime a thing becomes a thing, God doesn't pay much attention to it. So, what does the Bible say about how many people it takes to pray? Actually, one. <laughs> you. But, if any two, this is the miracle to God. This is the one he can't ignore. If any two of you should agree as touching anything. That's how hard it is to get agreement. How many of you have been married? You know how hard this is. We're on our 46th year. It's really hard to get an answer to any two is agreed. Is touch, he's got to have a couple in mind, in my mind. But any, if any two should agree as touching anything, it'll be done in heaven and in earth. But I got news for you. It doesn't work in that sequence. When heaven, heaven's already acted. So that's where he's saying in heaven. But it's not a sequence of the prayer. It's a sequence of the way God does things. He's already designed the answer. The answer's already been spoken in the heavenlies. What, what is missing is you asking the right question with an honest heart. I'm going to give you the question at the end because it works for everything. This is a product that will work for everything. You ever bought a product that will work for everything, doesn't work for anything? <laughs> this is a product that works for anything. And it's the simplest thing. It's a question, the right one, all the time for every situation in life. goes on in this passage, I will go and prepare a place for you. I will prepare a place for you. But before he got there, he said, you believe in God, believe also in me. Now, this is Jesus. Now, who is Jesus? 
I, 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 two brave people. It's, yeah, he's God. If you have seen me, who have you seen? You've seen the Father. That's what Jesus says. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now, let me put some context into that. I've learned a bit about Jewish theology over these last few years. And not just their theology, but their practice of their faith. And one thing you need to know about the Jewish people that are actually religious, and even the non-religious, are still, it's, it's still generally, generally true. They are people of great faith. They believe in God. You have to believe in God to go stand on a corner with a shawl wrapped around you and rock for hours praying something because you believe that's the way God will hear you. Some of that's rooted in tradition. But don't ever think that they're not sincere in their asking because they are. They believe that God has chosen them. I had one time a rabbi say, he said, yeah, you say I'm God's, we're God's chosen people. He says, that's true. You should try being chosen for, uh, for a while. Because they know their history. I already told you about the Assyrians and the Babylonians. and the, I mean, it goes on and on throughout history. The one we kind of, because we grew up in the shadows of it from a historic pers historical perspective, was Nazi Germany, where over six million Jews, women, <laughs> children, infants, were ripped from their parents' arms and murdered, thrown up in the air and stuck with bayonets under, with the laughter of Germans. Well, I hate to tell you, but probably most everybody in here has some German roots to you. That's, this is the most German area of the country that I know of. This whole Midwest. It's where the Germans came. They're a noble people. They're a good people. They always have been. But they were a deceived people. Hatred had taken over their hearts. They diminished the value of human life so much. Not just to the Jews, by the way. They did it to gypsies. They did it to a lot of people. They marched their own children off to war to die by the millions Because of hatred and pride and false, a false view of the world. The human heart can become desperately wicked. So, back to the Jewish faith. I came to respect and maybe even understand to some extent the depth of their faith as a people. They don't look at faith being as individual as we do. They look at faith as being a collective response to a promise from God. And they look to the Bible, their history, as the proof of that. And they read about their prophets, Elijah and Elisha and Moses, etc. But it's not like we preach it quite the same. They, it's different. They see something that we don't usually see. If you go back and read some of those very same places, you'll find, how, find out how terrified the Jewish people were when God spoke. They were absolutely terrified by it. Those prophets, 
that we honor and we think of, oh, how great it is that he stood in the presence of God. And, you know, the one prophet where he he asked to see God and God, you know, he put him in a cleft of a rock and passed by and all he saw was the backside and it terrorized him. So when they think of God, they think of him as wonderfully powerful and that he did choose them, and, but they're terrorized by that. And you know why? Because their whole history of faith was God coming to them. Coming to them on a mountain, to one man, and then he would go down to the people. And it would, the, 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 the glory of God was so great on Moses, they asked him, this is crazy, They asked him to cover his face because they couldn't stand to look at his face. The glory of God was so great on him. Read it in your book. It's right there. They were terrified by this awesome, terrible, glorious God who had made a promise to them and sealed their hearts to himself. Only to watch over thousands of years that become a sorrow in their very existence. And yet, they go still out on the corners and they put on their prayer shawls and they pray to a terrible, scary God. It's a little different perspective than probably you've had. That takes real faith. In learning about this, and I had to learn from the ground up, I began to understand also their misunderstanding of people like you and me who will say, we love you, but you need to stop being you and you need to be us because that's what they hear when we preach the gospel. That doesn't sound like love to them because they can remember the stories. They're still alive today. I've met people that survived the Holocaust and they can remember their families and friends and everybody they knew being marched into gas chambers while the German soldiers sang Christmas carols. The same ones you sing, just in German. And so it's really been hard for them to grasp and understand this hour in which we live. But they are so desperate at this stage. They reach out to people like you. And they have hope in people like you and me. That because we have a biblical worldview. Maybe we'll understand that they have a place in the world. We're not even talking about that we become Jewish. That's not their hope at all. Their hope is that we would have it in our hearts for them to be Jewish. And not kill them. Or destroy them. Go back and look at the Crusades again. It's an ugly picture. They mar- as they marched across Europe. But now the strange thing is, is that one of the most important things in Israel is the discovery of archaeology, of, of, of artifacts. Because it proves that they've been there that long. If they can prove the Crusaders were there, which I've seen many times, the Crusader cross is carved in the lime rock underneath the, in some secret place that has been excavated if they can if that's if that story's true then their story is true right if if the crusaders really came they were really coming to the holy land and history is proven they've been around about 3000 years in that land 
So we belong here, they say. Not just because God promised it, because we've been here for 3,000 years. This is our land that God put us in. He reassigned us. You know, you do realize that the Jewish, uh, Abraham was Saudi Arabian, right? You know that? Where he came from was not what we think of as Israel. He came from what we think of as Saudi Arabia. God took a people and led them across all of, Af all of that area of the Middle East up to that land and planted them there. So I'm not here to talk about Israel specifically. I'm here to talk about you. The reason I know everything I just told you is because God plucked me up out of one thing and dropped me into another. But it never works like that. It was the same thing that happened to me when I went to the mission field. God plucked us up out of the Jacksonville area and sent us to Costa Rica. And it began to break a logjam that needed to be broken in our lives. We were stuck and didn't know it. Let's go back to the prophecy that I heard. They're stuck. You know you can be stuck and not know you're stuck? Now, you guys have a lot of flash floods around here. When it rains, you know, because the land's dry or the, the soil doesn't set, take it. I've, I've, I've seen them. I've been in this area and I've been in Missouri and some other places where you see it happen. And you'll ha you can see places that have been flooded maybe 20 years ago, but it hasn't flooded that, in that long since then. And there's still a little stream of water that's kind of running through, but then there are all these logs that are along with the boulders and everything else that are just stuck in the soil. And then one day, another flood comes. And it lifts those up and moves them farther down the river. That's what I'm calling stuck. And what I'm calling unstuck is when the water flows. The reason I believe I got that prophecy on that day in that church was because of the move of God that is happening there right now. But I've seen moves like that before. And it'll pick up even the most lodged logs and move them forward and they think it's because of the revival but they don't understand that God floated them a little farther down the road to take them farther to where he's trying to get them you don't have to wait for a flood to be moved all it takes is one step of obedience what I'm about to tell you you're not going to like but it is not up to your pastor to move you forward in your faith it is not, it's not him holding you back. It's not your parents holding you back. It's not your spouse holding you back. It is you holding you back. No one else. No one else. At any moment. Do I sound a little angry? I'm not angry at you. I'm angry at me. Because I have often been that log yeah, you got to hear the highlights. That's, you don't want to hear the lowlights. There are plenty of them. When I was as stuck as stuck could be, when I was looking to another apostle or looking to my spiritual fathers or looking to my, somebody else to help, a supporter or something, and I was looking for something to move the logjam, and the, that's not the problem. Because sometimes revival was breaking out all around. Fruit was breaking, up all, uh, breaking out all around. The water will lift and move those logs a little bit. But the only thing that's going to keep me moving is to start making the decisions that I have to make every single day. To be obedient 
to the will of God, whether I'm working in whatever job I'm working. I remember my first real job as a teenager. I was already a Christian, already felt called to go into ministry. And I thought my problem was my boss. He just didn't recognize the value I brought. And I actually thought that. And I was dumb as dirt for thinking that. And you may be doing that right now. You're blaming something. Now, let's real quick, this is where I get to the end, kind of to the end. As I'm going through this, part of the word of the Lord was they're stuck in the past, they're stuck in the present, and they're stuck in the future. Let's go through that. Some of you are thinking, as soon as I say that, you're thinking of your childhood. And you're thinking, yeah, I had an alcoholic mom and a dad that left us, and it ruined my life. Could have, but Jesus came. But you don't realize that that's still bugging you. And everything you do today and have done since then, you're judging it on that. In other words, that freeze frames you right there. And in a way, you're still blaming them. And maybe that seems fair, but it doesn't help. Because you can't go back and change the past. Some of you are thinking right now, oh no, that's not, that wasn't me. I grew up in a great family, and you may have. Had great parents. Your hero was your dad, and your model was your mom. And you grew up in a, And ever since then, you've never been able to reproduce that in your own life. Because you think you're Peter Pan. You think you never grew up. You think they got that and just could give it to you. They got that because they earned it. They got that because they themselves became that kind of person. And it went maybe in some cases generation after generation. But it's not just keeping a set of rules. It was a heart condition that produces a family like that. A bad family, a good family. But one thing's for sure. I can get just as stuck on a memory of a great family and never be able to reproduce that and then blame everybody else because of that and just say, well, I wish you were more like my dad. I wish you were more like your mom. My mom, how does that working out? How is that helping? Now you've got another person trying to live up to a person that doesn't even exist for them because all they know is right now. Excuse me, I'm getting a call. I think it's from God here. No, it's actually my timer. Running out of time. I have these imaginations occasionally. How about you? I got news for you. I've never gotten a phone call from God. But I sure have gotten plenty of phone calls that God was speaking in. And (laughs) so you get stuck in the past. People get stuck in the present. What's that look like? They get stuck in comfort zones or fear. I'm using kind of extremes, but you understand they're all, there's this whole whole middle ground. But mostly it's because of two things. Fear of change or because of comfort where they are. It's crazy. A comfort zone can be really horrible, but it's still comfortable. You ever replaced an old mattress finally? 
and you got a new mattress, and it was the most incredible thing, and you go, why didn't I not do that 10 years ago? You ever done that? I have. Because I'll tell you why. Because you actually were dumb enough to believe that other one was comfortable. Because it had beat you up so much that you were, it was you that was soft. <laughs> not, not the bed. The bed was terrible. It was you that was soft. You weren't willing to make the sacrifice of having to try something different. And you're stuck in the present. Happens all the time. It's one of the most heartbreaking things a pastor experiences. You see such potential in people, and they just never achieve it because they get stuck in a comfort zone. And the worst of it is a comfort zone is not really comfortable. A comfort zone is a dead zone. You stay in it long enough. It sucks the life right out of your faith. It sucks the life out of your family. It sucks the life out of your dreams. And then there's the future. Now, some people are afraid of the future. And that's what holds them back. But that's not usually the problem. The, usually the problem is a false image of the future. And the disappointments that have come. Because it's not, the future is only, the, if today is the future of yesterday. Right? So you've been looking into the future your whole life. And how's that worked out so far? Did you ever have a disappointment in that process? Did you ever think it would turn out one way and turned out a different way? How about you? I have. And what that does is that has formed me in such a way that I oftentimes am walking into the future with a false idea of what it ought to be. And so I'm trying to force onto God through my prayer, through my imagination, Maybe through somebody. You always have somebody that's uh, counseling you. Oh, yeah, you, that's your, follow your dream. Follow your dream. That's some of the worst advice I've ever heard. I do know that's the most common thing in every school's teaching it. Follow your dream. Dream a dream. Follow your dream. It has value, but it's also just as dangerous as it is valuable. Because if your dream is not God's dream for you, your dream is wrong. Because God's dream is never wrong. And God dreams up stuff that I would never dream up, like putting me up against the Red Sea with an Egyptian army coming after me. Been there, done that. I'll be there and done that again. Unless the Lord takes me home today, tomorrow has disappointments waiting for me. Now, a lot of times we attach people to that, and so we get mad with people, and we blame them. But I can stand before you right now, the best friends I've ever had in my life were the ones that betrayed me, lied to me, stole from me, resisted me. Why are they my best friends? Because they formed me. I hardly ever get formed by somebody encouraging me. I always get formed by being forced to change. That's just me. Because the whole deal is dying. Dying to self. Isn't that the gospel? We die, we take on his death, and we enter into his death, and we die, and, he, and then he raises us to life with himself. Isn't that the gospel, the death, burial, resurrection of Christ? So death is the whole thing. It's not the end of the matter. It's just it's, you got to do it. you got to die. you got to die. Da- Paul says, I die daily. That's a lot. <laughs> That's 365 times a year. 
uh, and frankly, you usually die more than that. You die sometimes every hour, every 15 minutes, every 10 seconds. Something you're... And so the whole thing is to kill you. If, and so what God does is if you're not dying fast enough, you have to get married. <laughs> if that doesn't work, he gives you kids. <laughs> that usually doesn't work either, so he gives you grandkids. Then he gives them spouses. I mean, that's just the way this thing works. See, the fact is, is all of that is a setup to kill you off so that you may be the man or the woman that God has in mind for you and his dream for you. And when you don't fight that process too much, when you don't wiggle too much, one day you look in the mirror and you go, I'm kind of proud of what God's done in my life. But as much as I appreciate what Quentin said, the truth is, it's a bit embarrassing. Because I know the man. And I know the people that helped make it happen. And I wouldn't wish them on any of you. And yet, I would. Because that's what made me the man. Not the victories. Man, that lasts for about 10 minutes. It's the problems. It's the challenges. So you say, well, what, is God sitting up in heaven arranging them? No, he doesn't have to. <laughs> you take care of that yourself. <laughs> That's the good news. This is automatic. Just punch the button and off you go, and boy, you create all the mess you need. That's all it takes. Everything else is about redemption. That's what he's working you toward, to something better. So past, present. Future, you know, one of the things that happens a lot of times is when people get saved, is such that first few weeks is so special, and you always learn about stuff you didn't know about. So you find out, you read a book, and you hear about an apostle, you didn't even know there was an actual apostle still alive, and, and you go like, that's my vision, that's for me. And you take that and you go, that's me, I'm going to be that guy. doesn't work because it's a false vision for you it's likely that they didn't have that vision to get that vision you're looking at the aftermath Bishop's been trying to tell me I need to write another book telling all this story because I do have a pretty interesting story the problem is I can't tell you how I, I if I put it in a book I'd expose all the people that made me get this way and that wouldn't be very nice now, would it? I don't know if I could do that. I don't know if I could do it with an honest heart. I don't know if... Now, if I get to... Quentin, you stay after me, because if I get to a place where I get tenderized enough, I might be, get to the place where I could do it without letting any of that hurt come through. Maybe. No guarantees. But it's possible. So I'm not, I'm not going to say I won't, ever. I'm just simply saying... The truth is, they're the ones that I... I have some great spiritual fathers, and I, I, could tell you, I could tell a great story, but it'd be only half the truth. The other half is, it was those hardships that formed me. It was those moments of the dark night of the soul that formed me, that pushed me deeper, pushed my roots deeper. So we're about done here. I think I've hit oil already. Is that, are we about there? Think you got the point?
So that's what I meant by a barn burner. I didn't know, I didn't mean that I'd be a great preacher or give you great points of, of you know, points you can take and go preach them to somebody else. Everything I'm telling you is useless unless you do it. It's useless unless you live it. But if you do just a little bit, you immediately start to see the change. So that all of a sudden, no matter where you are in the world, no matter how many people have gotten you off the right path, there's always true north. In any, you know, you can take, you can take the way compasses work. You can be dropped anywhere on the planet, and it'll still point north because it's magnetic north, and it's it. There's the, it's the physics behind it. But it doesn't matter where you are. You are not going to get true north with a with a magnet, with a magnetic uh, direction. But it's close enough. You'll still be headed north. It, you might miss it by a few hundred miles, but. I mean, in Antarctica, what's it matter whether you're a few hundred miles off or not? Wherever you are, you're nowhere. So, <laughs> so don't worry about it. But, you could, but if you start to understand true north, that God is true north and nothing else is, there's enough magnetic north that you can read that you'll end up close enough. And by the grace of God, you'll end up accomplishing what God wants you to accomplish. That would be my testimony. And that will also be my finish. I've been stuck a lot of times, but it's time for us to get unstuck. It's not anybody's business but yours to get unstuck. Now, you might sit there right now and you think, this is a mountain. That would be discouraging if you didn't have the scriptures that tell you that by faith, a mountain can be picked up and cast into the sea. I've never seen that physically, but I have sure seen it relationally I've seen God deliver me from things that I didn't even know how big of a mountain it was until I was delivered but it was a thousand micro cuts that eventually cut the root of that problem and brought me to a place of change so in closing first closing in closing I want to ask you to do something It's very probable that as I have been speaking, you've been thinking about things. Occasionally, I've swerved into something that has put the spotlight on something in you. It's a relationship. It's a decision that you have in front of you. It's either something past, present, or future. It's something that you need to let go of. Maybe it's a false image of what your future ought to look like. All those things. Something I've said has most likely hit just about everybody in the room. I want you to think about that for a second. The reason it's spotlighted, the reason you thought it, is because that's where God's putting his finger. You ever been to the doctor and he touches you and he says, does that hurt? And you go, no. Does that hurt? No. Does that hurt? Ah! Don't touch that. Okay, well, I'm guessing that's where you're hurting. Okay, that's, that's a good... If you felt the pain, that's what I'm talking about. It's right there. If it got uncomfortable, didn't even hit the pain, but got uncomfortable, there's the issue. It could be your marriage. It could be a financial decision. It could be a job decision. It could be a, a missional decision, a volunteer decision, a... 
a marriage decision, uh, a child decision. I mean, it could be any number of things. I'm not, I don't pretend to be able to be a seer. But I can tell you how to solve the problem. And here's where we finish. I want you to write that thing down. When we go into prayer in a second, find a piece of paper, do something, write it down. And the reason I want you to write it down, I want you to remember it. You maybe need to write it down twice. But I want you to remember it because I know that if you listen, God will speak to you. I want to show you my notes. I didn't do this. I didn't have this planned. You notice there's something missing in my notes? It's part of the paper. That's because when I got through finished, when I got finished preaching this morning and people were coming forward for communion, I sat right there and God showed me something I needed to write down. And I wrote it down. And then about 30 seconds later, he showed me one more thing. And I wrote it down. And I folded it up, tore it off, and I folded it up. And when I came up to communion, I dropped it in a bucket right next to the communion servers, which is we're going to put buckets right next to them. Not for anybody to read. Those are not going to be read. They're not, no names on them. This is for you. You ever notice when you write something down, it becomes more real to you? You ever bought something and it felt so good while you, while you agreed with the salesman and then all of a sudden you're writing the check and it got real? You ever had that happen? I mean like really real? Really, really, really real? That's why I want you to write it down. It's not for us. It's for you. I want you to write it down. If you need to make two copies of it, do it. But I want you to come up here as you come to communion and drop that at the Lord's feet. And make a commitment as you receive the bread and the cup. Lord, I commit this to you. Be the hound of heaven. Chase me down until I get fixed in this. Kill off what needs to die and give me the courage to make the right decision. Final closing. I told you I would give you a question that would answer, bring all the right answers to you. Most of the time, basically, Thomas's question was why? Why should I believe you? How, how am I going to know the way? We don't know the way. How? Why? These are the questions we always ask, right? How am I going to do that? Why, am I, why me? Why not John? What about that, that person and that person? And why would you ask me that, Lord? And why, why won't you tell that to my spouse? Because when I tell her, she isn't going to like it. Or when I tell him, he's not going to like it. Then I have to defend it. And God says, no, you're going to have to live it. But this is not a why answer and it's not a how answer here's the right question it's what what does the Lord require of me quit asking Lord why don't you change my boss's heart why don't you change why, don't, why doesn't somebody recognize my spiritual gift why, why does my spouse disagree so often why just shut up and quit saying that kind of stuff. <laughs> quit asking why and ask what. What does the Lord require of me? That has become the most powerful question in my life. Because I guess what? When you ask that question with a sincere heart, you get answers. Sometimes immediate, sometimes later. But 
you get answers. And I, my faith is this morning, if remember the scripture, is any two touching, agree is touching one thing, it'll be done in heaven and earth. I'm standing here right now in agreement with every person. And I'm asking you to be in agreement with me that whatever it is we write down, God is going to do in you and God is going to do in me. Because I'm asking not why or how. I'm asking what does the Lord require of me? And I'm asking you to sincerely ask that question. And I'll be in agreement with you that God's going to show you what you're supposed to do. Does that sound, does that sound fair to you? Let's stand together. I'm just going to have you stand up so your legs don't go numb. And I'm going to turn it back over to Bishop here in a second. But I want to pray for you if you don't mind. Father, I thank you for these precious people. I know, I know many of them. And I know how sincere their heart is before you. I also know, Lord, we all struggle in our faith. We struggle in our belief. Help thou our unbelief. I'm asking you, we're asking you, Father, to help our unbelief, to push it away and grant to us a spirit of faith and grace and power that only you can give. I ask, Father, that each person would have the courage to face whatever it is that needs to be placed on your altar. And Lord, I'm asking for a fresh wind of grace, especially in this hour when the water is rising and things are happening here in the church. Float our logs. Push us downstream. But Lord, more importantly, cause us to keep on moving forward, even beyond any revival, beyond any moment, beyond anybody laying hands on us. Lord, take us to that place that only you can take us. And I'm asking, we're asking that you do that every single day for the rest of our lives on this planet. In Jesus' name, we ask and pray and believe that you will do that which we ask. In Jesus' name.